Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. On today's episode, we are on route to Michigan to talk with Mark Bello. Mark is a retired lawyer who has published several novels and is here to tell us more about them and his life. So, Mark, welcome to The Relatable Voice. Lucia, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's my pleasure as well. So, Mark, you live in Michigan, and I've been to Auburn Hills a long time ago. It was freezing, and unfortunately, I could not see anything. So, it was also the very first time I learned the English word blizzard. So, please tell us what do you enjoy doing during winter? In winter? Yes, in winter. Okay. Uh, in winter, I spend I spend a lot of my time in uh, the South in Florida. We have a uh, a condominium in Florida, um, but I miss my grandchildren. So we go back and forth, and and we spend holidays uh, with my grandchildren. Uh, most of my life, if I'm not writing these days, is spent with my family. Are you a snowbird? Because when I was living in Florida. I used to see many people coming from north to I'm a snowbird, yes. So you were a snowbird. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a difference. There there's um there's two terms. One's a snowbird who stays in Florida in the wintertime. The other's a snowflake who goes back and forth. So I'm more of a snowflake. Ah, I learned another word. So <laughs> snowflake. And what is the best time to visit Michigan? That's a difficult question. It depends on what you like. If you like winter uh, activities like skiing and ice fishing and uh, skating and things like that, Michigan's a great town for that, I make a great state for that. Mm -hmm. If you like summer activities, um, then the summer's the best. The Northern Michigan is the most beautiful uh, vacation spot I can think of. Mm -hmm. uh, of all the places I've been, except for maybe the Greek Isles, uh, Northern Michigan, hands down, is a beautiful, beautiful place. I would like to go there for hiking. So summertime is better. Okay. If you like hiking, yeah. Yes. So uh, you have eight grandkids. How do, do you, yeah, how do you manage your writing schedule with your family? It's difficult, uh, but you know, like I told you when you you asked me by email, the um, the balance can be easy as long as your family understands that when it's leisure time, you are engaged in leisure time. When it's work time, you're engaged in work time. And my grandkids, uh, who call me Poppy, know mm -hmm. that if Poppy's in his office and the door's closed. Don't bother Poppy. And it works out very well. 
mm-hmm. once in a while they'll come and say, you know, take me swimming or take me here or read me a book. Uh, it's my pleasure. And I love taking a break and doing that. So sometimes it's well, it's well, um, it's needed. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah, sometimes it's needed. I understand. Abs- absolutely. You need a break. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious to know why you decide to become a lawyer. I decided to become a lawyer early in life. Uh, my Jewish parents, especially my mother, uh, wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, she One of the funny little phrases of a Jewish mother is, my son, the doctor. The um, problem is that I didn't do well in science and math. That got in the way. I was very good in literature and, and uh, social sciences. So uh, the law became something that I was interested in. I read uh, early on in my life in... Uh, high school, I think, I read To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, It was the best and most vital legal novel of our time, I believe. Um, In fact, I look at the times we live in today, uh, and it must be much like Harper Lee looked at America when she wrote uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Back in the 60s, America was coming to terms with its racial identity. Today, following the presidency of our first American, African-American president, uh, we elect a man who's his polar opposite. Um, while we have come a long way on race, the 2016 election and the four years that followed it have kind of exposed what I call the racist underbelly of America. And it demonstrated that we have a long way to go. Change was in the air back in the 60s, and I think it's clearly in the air today. Yeah, exactly. And I see you published a legal thriller series that revolves around the main character, Zachary Blake. Correct. And... Is he inspired by someone? Zachary Blake is pieces of me, of uh, lawyers who I've handled cases with, of lawyers who I know in my community, of famous lawyers uh, like Jerry Spence or um, Deathly Bailey or Johnny Cochran, but not so famous lawyers who go to work every day, work hard, do very good work, and aren't so famous. So, you know, I've been a lawyer for over 40 years. I've met a lot of really, really good lawyers, and Zachary Blake is a combination of those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as he relates to me, uh, I was never that arrogant. I was never that confident in myself. I was never that narcissistical. Um, and you have to be that way to be as successful as Zachary Blake is. So while he has some of my characteristics, uh, his passion, uh, I share that with him, his, uh, political views, his, uh, passion for justice. Those are things that I think are important. And I 
made sure that he was passionate about those things. And how would you describe Zachary Blake in three words? Well, he's smart. He's very smart. He's fearless. Uh, a lot of lawyers uh, don't try cases. They don't want to go into the courtroom. They're somewhat afraid of losing. Zachary Blake is fearless, absolutely fearless. Nothing uh, dissuades him from his quest for justice. He's also compassionate. He cares about his clients. He cares about uh, those important issues that he represents clients for. And compassion is a very important part of what he is. He's tenacious. He is relentless. Um, same word, I guess. And, he, and he's a very tough guy. Uh, he won't back down from a fight. And he will get the job done. Oh, so I think he is the perfect lawyer. Yeah, the lawyer that I would choose, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. You'd be, you'd be very wise to choose Zachary Blake as your lawyer. <laughs> um, Mark, you have 44 years of courtroom experience, yeah? Yes. And that's a lot. Could you share something curious or interesting that our listeners will like to hear? Sure. When, when you say 44 years of courtroom experience... Most of your life as a lawyer is not spent in the courtroom. The courtroom is a very small part of what a lawyer does. Building the case, laying the groundwork. The, the books do a very good job, by the way, if I may say so myself, of showing how a lawyer lays the groundwork for trial work. If you don't build the case and the case isn't built by the time you get to court, you're not going to be successful in court. So most of a lawyer's job is spent laying the groundwork for that trial. And the trial is simply the culmination of the hard work that got you there. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of work yeah, before. To no question, no question. If you think about it like an author uh, coming up with an idea for a book, getting the getting the idea in your head, outlining it on paper, researching it, doing all of this grunt work that you need to do to get the book to fruition, and then you write. Very similar to practicing law. There's a lot of groundwork to be laid before you can ever try a case successfully. Mm-hmm. And your book, Betrayal for Justice, apparently got you accused of doing a hit job on Donald Trump. Can you please elaborate on what happened? Well, the, the book is not, it's based on Donald Trump. I, I, I grant that. Uh, it was written in 2016. It was written in four months during the election. And I watched the election unfold on television between watching CNN, watching MSNBC, 
watching Fox News, uh, getting both sides of the issues uh, from rather biased sources and saying to myself, my goodness, what would happen if a self-professed bigot became president of the United States? Now, some people would argue that Trump was just shooting his mouth off uh, and it was all rhetoric, but it made me concerned. I said to myself, if a guy stands up at a podium and says, all Mexicans are bringing drugs and crime into the United States, uh, that's not a thing that the person who represents Mexican-Americans ought to be saying. If a person says, I want to ban all Muslims from the country, that's not, a pers- that's not something that a person who represents Muslim Americans ought to be saying. And as a Jewish American, I say to myself, the Jews could be next. You could be next. Italians could be next. Who knows? So I, I didn't care for it. As to whether he meant it or not, you'd have to ask him. He seems to have meant it based on his performance in office. But I wrote the book before he became president. So if people saw a comparison between my evil president and Donald Trump, that's on Donald Trump, not on me. Yes, I understand. And it means that your book is a fictional book. It is a, it is a fictional book. Uh, it deals with a character a young Muslim woman who watches the president speak about banning all Muslims from the United States and gets scared. Uh, At the same time she's watching the speech, a white supremacist is watching the speech and he's emboldened. He's saying, wow, we finally have one of us in office. And he uses the president's inspiration to bomb a local mosque in Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, Dearborn, Michigan, by the way, happens to be the uh, capital of Muslims in America. We have the largest concentration of of Muslim uh, citizens in the United States right here in Dearborn, Michigan. He bombs this mosque, and the local cops don't seem to be doing a whole lot about it. So the young Muslim woman whose name is Arya Khan, decides to do her own little private investigation. And this young woman is very successful in discovering how the bombing was done and who did it. And she followed this guy around and witnesses his murder. Runs to his aid, despite the fact that he's a white supremacist, and comforts him as he's dying and is arrested when the cops come and see her on the porch holding the bloody knife. Wow. Zachary Blake uh, is called on to represent her, and the fun begins. I absolutely love crime thrillers. The president, by the way, hears about the story and wants to make sure she's convicted because it furthers his anti-Muslim agenda. So it becomes a battle between Zachary Blake, the local cops, the local um, legal community, and the president of the United States. 
Can you explain the titles a bit more for us? Why is it a betrayal of justice or a betrayal of faith? Well, my first, my first book was Betrayal of Faith. It's the only book of the seven books in the novella that I wrote that is based on an actual case that I handled. The rest of them are based on news stories that have troubled me over the last four years, starting with the 2016 election. But Betrayal of Faith is actually based on a 1984 case that I handled and resolved against the Catholic Church in a case of clergy abuse. Two young children were uh, inappropriately abused by a Catholic priest. Uh, that story is not unique, but it was back then. The crisis in the Catholic Church has been going on for decades behind the scenes. The movie Spotlight, well-named, uh, shined a spotlight on the Boston, Massachusetts scandal, which um, involves several kids. Here in Michigan, this priest uh, was convicted of criminal sexual conduct against the two boys I represented. But what people didn't know was there were six boys who he molested before the two that I represented. Why don't I know that? Or why don't people know that? Because the records were sealed, not just by the church, not just by the hierarchy of the church, but by the Wayne County Circuit Court. Even the court was complicit in the cover-up of these kinds of crimes. So what I did is I, back then, after I resolved the case, I said to myself, this would make a really interesting book. And I promised myself in my 30s that I would one day write a book. It, <laughs> it took me almost 30 years to finally do it. Um, and I wrote a book in uh, around 2014, 2015. I wrote it several times. I picked it up and started writing it in the 90s, uh, put it down for a long time, and then picked it up again when I retired. It is a st the story of how it felt. It's not a true account. It's a fictional account. It's embellished. Uh, it creates a kind of CIA-type organization uh, within the church that has the function of covering these things up and making things go away uh, quietly and by any means possible. Mm -hmm. And you have six books in this series, yeah? There are six currently, and I wrote a seventh about the immigration crisis, yeah. Ah, okay. Because I was looking at your books and I didn't find this one. Six right now in a novella and a seventh on the way, probably end of the year. That's so amazing. 30 years ago, you planned to write one book and you now are writing. I didn't know whether I had one book in me. It was about a personal experience. The 2016 election came along 
inspired me to write the second book. And once I finished the second book, I realized that, okay, I can do this. And as topics came along on the news, I continued to write. So, for instance, the third book, Betrayal in Blue, is about the blue wall of cops suing cops or not suing cops uh, and uh, a follow-up on the white supremacy theme. Betrayal in Black, the fourth book, is about police shootings of innocent black men in America, which is a big problem, as you know. Betrayal High, the fifth book, is about school shootings, gun control, and greed in the gun industry and in the political arena. Uh, a lot of politicians make it very easy for gun manufacturers to do what they do without any punishment at all. So it takes a hard look at not only school shootings and bullying, but gun control and uh, anti-citizen legislation in the gun industry. Um, betrayal, uh, Supreme Betrayal, my sixth book, is about sexual assault by the rich and powerful, political cover-ups, and women speaking truth to power. It's not directly based on the Me Too movement, but it has elements of Me Too in it. Uh, it features a very strong, uh, aggressive, determined, is probably a better word than aggressive, young woman who is determined to make her perpetrator pay and make certain that he's not appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that is what Supreme Betrayal is about. My novella, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, is a prequel. It's about Zachary Blake at the time of his bar mitzvah. His uh, maternal grandfather is a Holocaust survivor who escaped from Auschwitz in a very exciting uh, escape. And he has promised his grandson that when he is bar mitzvahed, he would tell him the story of his escape from Auschwitz. And the book details the results of that promise and tells the story of his escape from Auschwitz. That's so interesting. I'm looking forward to start reading your books, Mark. And they are very timely. Kind of uh, fact-based fact fiction. Yeah. Ripped from the headlines, as some people like to call, like to call uh, them. Yeah. Mark, I chose this quote for you. It's from Robert Frost. And he says, a jury consists of 12 persons choosing to decide who has the better lawyer. What do you think about this quote? I did, to some degree, that quote is accurate. I'm not, I'm not as cynical as Robert Frost. Uh, the quote, if you think about it, is insulting. Most juries that I've argued cases to, I, in my view, as I told you earlier, if you lay the foundation, if you do the grunt work, if you have the evidence to prove your case, even a bad lawyer, a bad trial lawyer, who does very good investigative 
grunt work building the case, if he presents the evidence in a way that is cohesive and convinces the jury, he's going to win the case. If a, if he presents it in a way that confuses the jury, perhaps he'll have a hard time. Um, but I, I really do believe that evidence will overcome a bad lawyer. Jurors are smart people. They know when they're being snowed. If the evidence is compelling, the lawyers presenting it become somewhat irrelevant. And that's how I feel about it. I don't completely disagree with Frost, but I'm not as cynical as he is. Mm -hmm. I understand what you mean. <laughs> and Mark, what comes first for you, plot or characters? Well, for me, in the first book, it was clearly the plot. The case, the book was going to be about the case that I handled. Uh, so Zachary Blake and, and the uh, woman who later became his wife, by the way, and his two stepsons, who were the victims of abuse in the first book, those people came later. Mm -hmm. um, the, the plot was first. After that, um, well, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Blake was first. Mm -hmm. the plot, the plot uh, it came later. I had to create these characters. Uh, after I created Zach and Jennifer and uh, Micah Love, the investigator, um, and I decided to write a second book and develop Zach and others further, uh, each book and each case presents kind of a new challenge for mm -hmm. Zach. And I began to create uh, compelling characters of evil, good, good and evil for that matter, uh, to accompany him, him on his journey. Um, every case, though, except the first, was plucked from the news. Uh, some topic that I found to be interesting and decided to, wrote a book, uh, to write a book in characters related to that topic. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I've attacked it. The news has been in, inspirational to me. I find fact much more um, interesting than fiction. And back to Zachary Blake, how does he look physically? I actually have a good answer for that. I, okay. I believe the character looks like the reader wants him to look. The reason I, 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 you know, I've read a lot of books and a lot of authors will often describe the character in detail. I've described Zachary and Jennifer and others uh, in, I would say, less detail. And the reason I do that is because I want the reader to decide for himself or herself mm -hmm. what the character looks like. Now, I. I described Micah Love as kind of a heavy, slovenly, shirt-hanging-out, uh, unkempt hair kind of guy. You can, you can picture a guy like that. Uh, I've described Zachary as somebody who has uh, gray at the temples and, what, uh, and kind of me at, at, at a younger age. But, I, but I've only done it in one or two books, and I've most people who read my books can make up their own mind as to what they look like. 
Yeah, it's better to let the the readers imagine how the character looks like. We can give some tips. Yeah, some ah oh, the blue eyes or yeah. I'm not I'm not a very descriptive author. I don't I don't write scenery and character uh, uh, features mm -hmm. uh, like some authors might. And your last book is about immigration. Yes, can you tell us a little bit more? It's called Betrayal uh, at the Border. It's about the immigration crisis in America. Um, a couple of uh, children, well, their, their parents work at a plant. The plant is raided. Uh, they're illegal immigrants who have been in America for years. They're deported. The children are rounded up and carted off to a detention center. Zachary Blake and, and his immigration department head, Marshall Mann, uh, are on the case. And they're going to reunite this family one way or another. At the same time, a young Muslim woman who has been in America for four years with her husband and has a child travels to Syria to visit her mother, who still lives in Syria, in Kobani by the Turkish border. Uh, as she's going to visit her mother across, crossing the country from Damascus to Kobani, her uh, van is hijacked and she's kidnapped by ISIS. Uh, Zach is called upon to travel to Syria and negotiate the release of these two young ladies. Uh, the two stories alternate chapter by chapter and are both told in rather compelling fashion. Uh, and the book is called Betrayal at the Border. Mm -hmm. It will be your seventh betrayal, I it believe. It will be my seventh betrayal. Yes, wonderful. Uh, and you have more, any plans for 2021? What is coming next for you? Something, something will happen in the news that ticks me off. For sure. And I'll, a, <laughs> and I'll write a book about it. I'm sure you'll get a lot of <laughs> inspiration. As I told you off camera, I've also written a couple of uh, children's books that I'm working on. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll see what happens with those. And where can our listeners find you and, of course, your books? The books are available on Amazon, uh, obviously. Uh, they're, they're available uh, at any online bookseller. Uh, and they're available on my website, at www.markmbello.com. Uh, at the website, you can also download for free by subscribing to the website, the novella, the Holocaust era novella, Lador Vador from generation to generation. So if you go to my website right now. <laughs> yeah, you are there listening to us. Please go to Mark's website and download for free his novella. What's its name again, please? The name of the book is Lador Vador hyphen from generation to generation. It was so good to talk to you. I love the themes of your books. 
keep doing this amazing work that you are doing. And yeah, and come back when your fifth, seventh book is published. All right, I will. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening and remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.